I Lived with a Killer is part of the Real Crime Collection in the Reels Files on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes each Thursday. Then, go to Reels.com to find chilling programs like this when you watch TV. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll find only on Reels Channel. The 2016 mass shooting at Orlando's Pulse nightclub is one of the worst in history. Cops are using explosives, battering rams, anything they can do to get survivors out. Few people know the shooter better than his ex-wife. He was just a really imbalanced person that had a lot of hate and anger. Having endured his rage years before... He started dragging me and threw me on the floor and started choking me. A psychopath can't keep up that facade, and it basically crumbles very quickly. And the evil that would one day shock the nation. I still remember the way his eyes looked. There was no soul, there was no heart, there was no humanity there. And I said, Dad, what's going on? He said, there was a mass shooting, and it was your ex-husband. Omar Mateen's short life is strewn with failure and conflict, ultimately leading him to commit a horrific mass murder carried out in the name of ISIS that shocks the entire world. When Omar opens fire inside Orlando's Pulse nightclub in June 2016, it is the worst single gunman mass shooting in U.S. history, leaving 49 people dead, another 53 wounded, and an entire nation consumed with grief. Omar Mateen goes down in history as a monster. But only a few short years earlier, in 2009, he seems like a fun, charming young man when he meets Satora Yousafi, the woman who would become his wife. Omar and I met online. He looked very, um, very sweet, very charming, um, just like a normal guy. He messaged me. He said, hey, how are you? You look cute. Um, and we just started talking. First, we were talking online uh, for a few weeks through messages, and then we exchanged numbers, and we started conversating on the phone. Like Satora, Omar is from a traditional religious family. About two, three months after we met online, we met in person. It was really my first real relationship, and it was an exciting time. We both knew we were from the same religion and from a similar culture. We knew that it could possibly lead to marriage. After only six months of dating, Omar proposes. We both knew that we were looking for marriage, and we liked each other the way that we were at that time, and he asked me if I would like to marry him. And he said he would like to marry me. And I said, I would. But with the speed of their courtship, 19-year-old Satora has no clue about Omar's troubled past. Omar is born in New York in 1986. His parents, Sadiq and Shala Mateen, had fled Afghanistan following the 1979 Russian invasion and come to America to start a new life. Omar's father was from Afghanistan. He was also Pashto, which they're known to be very proud people. I guess he was also a political figure in his country. 
here in the United States, he was pretty successful as a financial advisor. So he had a lot of things to be proud of. The family moves to Florida, and young Omar is expected to follow in his father's footsteps. Dr. Catherine Smirling, family therapist. Omar's childhood was not easy. His father especially had uh, high expectations for him. That was his only son. Male children, especially in the Muslim religion, are revered. And they are looked at as the heir apparent to many generations of other men. His parents were very concerned about wealth and status. That influenced just how they would bring up their children and what they would allow and what they would accept, and they had very high standards. Young Omar finds it impossible to live up to his parents' expectations, and he begins to rebel. Him and his father or him and his mother would um, just clash and be very difficult for them to accept how he is. For a child to grow up in a strict religious household, there are many pressures. First of all, it's very rigid. It's very structured. And it also puts the child in a position where the modern world or anything outside of the family becomes very exciting because that's not what they are exposed to. So in many ways, it may make a child more have more of a propensity to rebel and to be more excited about trying new things and kind of escaping the rigidity of the household. The dynamics between Omar and um, his father were pretty challenging because of who he was and how he wanted his family to be. And Omar, I just don't think he was emotionally able to live up to all that. Omar's rebellious behavior also comes out at school. Michael Bryant, legal analyst. Even at a young age, Omar was really a handful in school. I mean, he would be verbally abusive to the adults and the other students. He'd talk about sex, talk about violence. In 1999, Omar's parents come to the school. They're trying to help him through these discipline problems, these behavioral problems. And it turns out that Omar was being bullied himself, but his response was to threaten to shoot another student. Nobody took him seriously. Sadiq actually blames the administrator, blames the school for his son's outburst and this, this behavioral issue. He says the kids are picking on Omar and that's what's precipitating this behavior. When a parent protects a child by saying that outlandish behavior or aggressive behavior is okay, that parent is doing a child no service and no favor because all they're doing in a child is creating the idea that, well, maybe it was okay. Maybe I, it wasn't so bad. My father came to protect me. As an adult, Omar struggles to find his own sense of self. After attending 10 different schools, Omar finally graduates and decides he's going to attend a local community college finally feels the sense of freedom for the first time. His classmates say it was at this time that he started frequenting gay bars, trying to strike up relationships with gay men. Homosexuality is a sin in Islamic culture. In countries like Afghanistan, it has been the cause of death. So shame was very deeply ingrained in him. And I believe that the deeper shame 
would have been for him to admit any homosexual tendencies. Reports of Omar's aggression continue. You know, he uh, becomes a fitness buff, he joins a gym. A lot of the regulars at the gym kind of comment on his uh, extreme anger. Omar also develops an interest in law enforcement and security, but his troubled behavior gets in the way. In 2006, Omar gets his degree from community college and he gets a job as a prison guard. That lasted about six months. He's terminated when he tells a, a fellow trainee that he thinks he might want to bring a gun to training. Pursuing a career in law enforcement was a power play for him. It also gave him the authority to carry a gun, to buy a gun, to buy ammunition, and to walk around in a uniform. And that was necessary for him to show because he felt so powerless in his life. In his early 20s, Omar is still trying to live up to the cultural norms expected by his parents. In 2008, he uses a social networking site looking for an appropriate mate. Satora is the perfect candidate, and the two quickly click. Satora had emigrated to the United States from Uzbekistan with her parents eight years earlier and settled in New Jersey. Coming to this country was a major shock for me. It was a drastic change from the reality that I was born into and grew up in. I wanted to be like the kids around me, like my classmates, but I couldn't because my parents didn't want me to be that way. So I rebelled a lot for sure. I was a very difficult teenager. I would lock myself in my room. I would skip school. I would sneak out, you know, all of these things. Still single at 19 years old, Satora feels pressure from her family to find a nice Muslim man to marry. So in my culture, we are supposed to be married around the age of 19, 20. If you can marry at 17 or 18, that's even better. I believe it's starting to change now, but when I was growing up, at least my family was still making comments and that I felt that pressure from everybody. My parents actually already had open doors to some suitors, but I had this uh, very rebellious side to me. I felt like I should find that person for myself, however that may be. So that's when Omar came in. Right from the start, Omar makes a good impression. He knew how to listen, and um, he was very engaging in conversations. He had a lot of opinions which is, I guess, one of the reasons why I continue talking to him, because he, unlike most men, was asking me questions and was truly interested in my life. A few months later, Omar flies to New Jersey to meet Satora in person. When I first met him, he seemed, you know, just uh, very funny. You know, he was, he was definitely different. He would make jokes or comments about people that would pass by, or he would make something up in his head. It was all just, you know, a way to bring in humor and conversation. It was amazing. It was, it was great. Six months into the relationship, Satora agrees to marry Omar. Omar asked me to marry him over the phone, <laughs> and I said I would, and that's when he could tell his parents to do the next step of coming and meeting my parents and asking for my hand in marriage. Omar and Satora's parents are brought together to complete a formal marriage arrangement. 
Satora's parents were not all that thrilled with Omar, but then they met Omar's parents, and then they were dead set against the marriage. They just felt there was something off with both Omar and his parents, and Satora's dad said, you're making a terrible mistake. They definitely came up to me, and they uh, expressed how they feel. They said that this was not the right family for me, this was not the right relationship. And I did not take that well, because again, it seemed to me like a form of, you know, control. So I rebelled against it. And the more they told me that they don't like it, the more I actually wanted to do it. In April of 2009, despite her parents' objections, Satora moves to Florida to be with Omar. One morning, my parents woke up and I was in there. I had left and eloped to be with Omar. It's hard growing up in a family that is trying so hard to keep the culture that they keep you sheltered. I felt like freedom. <laughs> I felt like I can breathe. But in a few short weeks, Omar begins to show his true colors. One of the aspects of a psychopath is that you're able to turn on charm at times. And I'm sure that Omar was able to turn on the charm but a psychopath can't keep up that veneer and can't keep up that facade. And it basically crumbles very quickly. The Omar Mateen that would one day commit mass murder is there, just below the surface. It was about two weeks before I started really maybe regretting it a little bit. In June 2016, Omar Mateen carries out one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history, killing 49 people inside Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Omar's troubled history reaches all the way back to childhood as he struggles to live up to the expectations of his overbearing father. When Omar meets Satora Yousafi in 2009, the two quickly wed. I believe that we actually both were trying to escape from our family. In Satora, Omar finds the devoted wife his parents expect. Two weeks after I arrived in Florida, Omar and I officially got married. We went to City Hall to sign the papers and do it legally so that religiously or culturally we're not doing anything wrong. It was a happy day for me because I thought I was with the good person. I thought it was with the right person. But it doesn't take long for Satora to realize she's made a mistake. It was very difficult for me, probably more difficult than I thought it would be to not have the support and, you know, approval of my family. I guess more so because Omar's family wasn't as welcoming and as supportive as I hoped they would be. So I really felt, started feeling alone. Still dreaming of becoming a police officer, Omar gets a job at a security company as an armed security guard. Soon, Satora begins to notice Omar's controlling behavior. I found a job as a daycare teacher and I started working, but I would give my checks to Omar. That's what the deal was that's what he wanted he wanted to have a joint account but i never saw that money omar would definitely monitor my finances and everything that i use money for omar becomes abusive 
toward Satora. Verbally abusive. He only lets her go to her daycare job and then come home. She can't call her parents. I started to notice Omar's emotional behavior. Certain things would trigger him, like spending time with his father would trigger him. And after that, he would just be full of rage and anger. And he would start yelling. I realized that Omar had issues and that he was not the person that I thought. Before long, the verbal abuse becomes physical as well. The abuse started happening more often, and anything that would trigger him or at work, um, at his, with his family, he would come home and take it out on me. Omar knew a lot of techniques to, you know, attack where it would not leave evidence. I had bruises on my body, but it never got to the point that I had to go to the hospital. I knew that if I called the cops, it would be a huge commotion and he would most likely not become a cop after that because, you know, he would have something on his record. So I just really hoped that it would change. It was really disempowering. It was really degrading. I felt hopeless. Satora suspects that Omar's anger issues stem from his inability to please his domineering father. He had high hopes and expectations for Omar, which Omar just, I don't think, had it in him to really fulfill. Like the beleaguered son in the Oscar-nominated film Fences, Omar struggles to please an unappeasable father. Omar was full of shame because he was not the kind of man that his father was proud of. So shame was very deeply ingrained in him. One time, Omar and his father were going back and forth. Like, there was an argument starting, and at some point, Omar's father called him Kuni, which in Farsi means gay. And Omar just froze. I was there in that room, and I could, like, just sense there was so much pain and um, anger and insecurity that's, that was, like, going through him at that moment. That's when I kind of saw that there was something there. It was a little bit more than just, you know, uh, regular arguments and fights. As Omar's conflict with his father continues, his abuse of Satora intensifies. I fell asleep on the floor watching TV, and all I remember was the pillow being snatched from under my head. And I banged my head against the floor, and then he started pulling me from my hair, dragging me. I tried to push him off, so he just grabbed my neck and sort of like threw me on the floor and started choking me. At that time, I just still remember the way his eyes looked. There was no soul, there was no heart, there was no humanity there. He let go just before I passed out. The explanation that he gave me after he came to his senses was that I didn't finish the laundry and that he had a fight with his father. Like the young wife played by Jennifer Lopez in the movie Enough, Satora finds herself trapped in a marriage to an increasingly abusive husband. Five months into the marriage, Satora's parents begin to sense the depth of her trouble 
My mother called me and she said, you know, having some weird dreams, is everything okay? And when my mother said that, I couldn't hold it in. I couldn't hold the tears. It was confirmed that I was getting abused. Omar came and he slapped the phone off my hand and it broke and my head went and hit the headboard of the bed. And he said that if I'm trying to leave him, it's not gonna work. The next week, Satora's parents fly to Florida to visit their daughter. When I got to the hotel, that's when I first saw my dad. After a long time, I just ran to him and I started crying so much. You know, he's my dad, he's my protector. And so I felt like, I felt like he was there and he could protect me for that moment. After the weekend, Omar came to pick me up. My parents said, why don't you guys come to the restaurant with us tomorrow night? And I said, okay, and Omar confirmed and told them that we were going to be there. He comes to pick me up, but we start driving a different direction. I asked him, I said, um, we're supposed to go to my, my family. We're going to see them for dinner. He said, yeah, we're just going to stop by my parents' house for like five minutes, and then we'll be on our way. We get there, and Omar just flops down on the couch and just starts watching TV. So I asked him, I said, what are you doing? And he said, I don't feel like going. I said, okay, I can drive, you can relax. He said, no, I don't want you driving the car. At that point, I start crying because I realized that I'm literally being held hostage. Two minutes later, my dad calls me. And he said, you know what, I'm gonna be there in 10 minutes. And they come in and they sit down. My dad starts talking and says, our children are together and they're married, but I am feeling that my daughter is not happy. His dad responds by like yelling. My dad just looked at me and he said, Sitora, get up, we're gonna leave. I got up and I followed my family out the door. Then Omar just grabs me and pulls me back. And he says, no, you're my wife. You're not going to go anywhere. Omar reaches into the back pocket of his pants. And I knew he had a gun. My mother saw that too, and she, she screamed. Seven years before he makes history for the horrific mass shooting at Orlando's Pulse nightclub, Omar Mateen is already a troubled young man, unable to live up to his domineering father's expectations. Fed up with his abusive behavior, Omar's young wife, Satora, wants to leave him. At that point, I start crying because I realize that I'm literally being held hostage. But when Satora's parents come to collect her, Omar isn't prepared to let her go. I got up and I followed my family out the door. Then Omar just grabs me and pulls me back. And he says, no, you're my wife. You're not going to go anywhere. You're going to stay here with me. After my mom starts pulling me back from my arm, Omar reaches into the back pocket of his pants. Satora knows that Omar keeps a silver handgun in the house and that he isn't afraid to use it. Omar, no, later, no. My dad started like walking really fast towards Omar. So that's when I broke free and I went to hug my dad and um, to shield him and to say, dad, let's go back in the car. Let's just, let's just leave. 
His dad starts banging the car and starts cursing us, and we just drive away. Satora returns to New Jersey with her parents, but not long after, she discovers that she's pregnant. It was difficult. It was really difficult because I was afraid of this person. I spoke to my family about it, and they said, "Well, you have to see what Omar does." He called me and was acting as if nothing had happened, as if everything was normal, and like he was affectionate and caring again. And um, Omar was like, "I can get you a ticket, and you can just come here." And I almost did. I got on the plane, and right when I sat down, I had a vision of my mother crying. Everybody was coming in. I got up. I like started pushing everybody out. I ran out of the plane. Ultimately, the child is never born, and in 2011, their divorce is finalized. I was not in a good place. I was suicidal. Actually, I was miserable, and I was crying every single day. My family, you know, they were they were doing the best they can. I decided to move out. This time on my own with my high school classmate, actually, to New York. After his marriage to Satora ends, Omar's life takes a turn. In 2011 into 2012, Omar starts really getting deeper and deeper into religion.、He、even begins what will become an annual trip to Mecca. As Omar's interest in religion grows. So does his fascination with the radical elements that frequently grab news attention. He gets fascinated with the concept of suicide bombing and ISIS, and he starts looking at YouTube videos on that gruesome subject. In 2013, it's the Boston Marathon bombing. It's an event that Omar seems to take some special interest in. He even goes as far as to say he knows the brothers who carried out the bombing. Omar is interviewed by law enforcement. But his claims prove untrue. If we look at the young adults who have become radicalized in the past ten, twenty years, you will see adults that, or young adults, that do not have any base. They are wanderers. They don't know what they're going to do. In Omar's case, he always looked for approval from his parents, and the only thing he got from his parents was deep shame. So when he was radicalized, that gave him a purpose and a reason for people to be proud of him. In 2014, the FBI again talks to Omar because he has a connection with this businessman who's been traveling to the Middle East, apparently to be a, a suicide bomber. But again, the FBI determines that Omar is not a threat. Despite remarrying and starting a family, Omar continues to try to reach out to Satora on social media. I would actually hear from Omar quite often. He had his friends message me and continuously ask me about things, try to connect, reconnect, and I would block all of the accounts. And Omar continuously would make different accounts with different names. And would contact me, and it was like really, really bothering me. He would just message me as if nothing happened. Just say,、hey, "How are you doing? How's everything?" And、uh, I just responded saying, "Don't ever contact me ever again." And I blocked that account again. At the same time, Omar's increasingly erratic behavior isn't contained at home any longer. 
A co-worker was quoted as saying he has anger management issues. And something would always set him off, and it seemed to be involving women, race, or religion. Those were the button pushers. Around the same time, reports of Omar start popping up around Orlando's LGBT community. In 2016, Omar is allegedly seen frequenting gay dating sites. He's also seen at a local nightclub in Orlando, Florida called Pulse. Well-known gay nightclub. He's often seen, though, just kind of sitting in the background, quiet, keeping to himself. On the other hand, he's also been seen getting drunk, loud, and belligerent. Still unable to truly be the man his father wants him to be, Omar latches on to a dangerous idea he may believe will finally make his father proud. His obsession with watching suicide bomber videos grows, and in particular, the fame the videos bring to the bombers themselves. I truly believe that somewhere behind all of this was him wanting to be famous and known. So he goes down as an Islamic superstar, and I don't think he had fear of that. I think he craves that. In the weeks leading up to the shooting, Omar is becoming increasingly obsessed with these ISIS suicide bomber videos. And he's starting to spend money like crazy, buys a couple of guns and a ton of ammunition. On June 11th, the first weekend during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, Omar makes his move. On June 11th, Omar stops by to see his dad, Sadiq, just having a little visit. And Sadiq doesn't notice really anything off about his son. He's wearing his security guard uniform, just assumes that Omar is off to work. But in reality, Omar drives to downtown Orlando, where Pulse nightclub is teeming with 320 people, all happily dancing, with no idea of the terror to come. Omar goes inside. He's having a drink. He's scoping the place out. Then he goes out and gets his guns. It's the start of one of the worst shooting sprees in U.S. history. In 2016, Omar Mateen carries out one of the worst mass shooting sprees in U.S. history at Orlando's Pulse nightclub. While no one knows his true motivation, Omar's ex-wife Satora knows that Omar has struggled throughout his life to meet his domineering father's expectations. I just don't think he was emotionally able to live up to all that. His father had already not accepted him the way that he already was, which for any child makes it harder to become what the parent wants them to be. Desperate for the wrong kind of recognition, Omar hatches a sinister plot. I truly believe that somewhere behind all of this was him wanting to be famous and known. So he goes down as an Islamic superstar. I think he craves that. In the early hours of June 12th, Omar Mateen leaves his car and walks towards the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. He's armed with a semi-automatic assault-style rifle, a handgun, and a lot of ammunition. He gets to the door, and he fires several shots. An off-duty Orlando cop is working security that night. He's in the Pulse parking lot. He hears shots fired. He looks over to the entrance, and he sees Omar Mateen. They exchange shots, but the officer retreats, calls for backup. 
After 2.02 a.m., Omar enters the club and he opens fire on the dance floor. The whole thing is caught on a patron's cell phone. That patron was one of Omar's first victims. Omar then moves across the dance floor toward the VIP section near the patio, shooting into the crowd. The DJ is in the middle of doing his thing when he hears gunshots. He turns down the music and he yells, hey, get out, there's a guy with a gun. So patrons are scrambling, trying to get out wherever they can. Some go toward the patio, others end up in the offices or the bathrooms. I can only imagine what it must have been like to be in that nightclub, not knowing exactly where the killer is, not knowing where the shots are coming from. I would say that people were just hiding and piling on top of each other, totally confused and panicked and not knowing what to do. Moments later, fire crews and deputies arrive. They're told right away this is an active shooter situation. So they do their best to immediately get folks out of the building. They get as many as they can across the street to this kind of makeshift triage location. Six or seven officers break through this huge plate glass window, and immediately they can see a number of dead victims. They're doing their best they can to get the survivors out of that building. By 2.14 a.m., they find 22 survivors. They're all huddled in this one bathroom near the main dance floor. But there are hundreds of others still inside. Information is getting out on multiple fronts. The 9-11 service is flooded. Pulse has its social media page, and somebody has posted, everybody get out of Pulse and keep running. Someone calls in that Omar is reloading in a bathroom. People are texting, they're posting, they're doing everything they can to warn others, to get them to stay away or to get them help. Pulled up in a bathroom at the back of the club, Omar reaches out to make sure his actions have the desired effect. He makes a 911 call. It lasts about 50 seconds. In that call, he pledges his allegiance to the Islamic State. He actually then searches the Internet for news of the shooting. He's looking at all the social media platforms to see if he's trending. Omar then calls a local TV station repeating his pledge for ISIS. He knew he wasn't getting out of the Pulse nightclub alive. But he wanted to die with a purpose. And by calling police and the reporters and the other media, there was a purpose. It was for ISIS. He would be revered in death, unlike the way he was shamed in life. At 4 a.m., Omar texts his wife to make sure she's seen the news of the shooting. With Omar still barricaded in a bathroom, more than two hours after his rampage began, police tried desperately to end the standoff. Omar speaks with a crisis negotiator. He identifies himself as an Islamic soldier. The negotiator asks him, do you know what you've done? And Omar says, you know what I did. Then he tells him there's a bomb in a vehicle parked outside. With reports that Omar has explosives, the Orange County Fire Department calls out the bomb squad. Omar tells them in 15 minutes he's going to put an explosive vest on four different patrons and put them in four corners of the building. Cops can't wait. They decide they've got to get in there. They punch a hole in the wall. 
Meanwhile, patrons and the police are helping get people out of there as best they can. They removed air conditioner units, bringing people out those holes. They're getting people out any available exit. Cops are using explosives and battering rams. They're trying to take down walls, anything they can do to get survivors out. Then police throw two stun grenades into the north bathroom. There's a huge flash, this loud bang. Omar staggers out of the bathroom. But that doesn't slow him down. He is still firing at police. They fire back. Omar hits the ground. Police are still concerned that uh, Omar might be strapped with a bomb, so they approach him very carefully. They take their time. But at 5.53 a.m., authorities confirm Omar is dead. Omar's horrifying attack leaves 49 people dead and 53 others injured. At the time, it is the worst single-shooter mass shooting the U.S. has ever endured. As news of the devastating event spreads across the country, Satora is awakened by a phone call. I woke up because I felt my phone vibrating, and I pick up my phone and I see so many missed calls from my, my father, my mother. I knew something was, something was wrong. And I called and I said, Dad, what's going on? He said, well, you want to turn the TV on. Um, there was a mass shooting, and it was your ex-husband. She's been divorced from him for five years, but Omar's horrific actions will impact Satora in a way she could never predict. Before being taken down by police, Omar Mateen kills 49 people and wounds 53 more in Orlando's Pulse nightclub. At the time, it is the worst single-shooter mass shooting in U.S. history. Omar's ex-wife, Satora, is shocked to wake up and hear the news. I woke up and I see so many missed calls from my, my father, my mother, and my father texted me saying to call him back. I knew something was, something was wrong. He said, well, you want to turn the TV on. There was a mass shooting, and it was your ex-husband that carried out the shooting. So I turned on the TV, and um, it was all in every news channel. It was a shock. I just didn't want to believe that he actually did that, and he actually took so many lives and hurt so many people. I started just having flashbacks of how he would abuse me, of like his anger, and violence, and um, it all just fit together. I felt so much pain um, for everything that had happened. When the FBI shows up at her door, searching for answers about Omar, Satora has little to share. They wanted to know more about Omar and the things that happened between us or the things that he would say. They asked my thoughts about his sexuality and I told them I didn't know. Satora's first instinct is to hide away, steer clear of the public eye. But she quickly realizes that privacy is a thing of the past. I don't know how the media came to find out about me, but my phone was blowing up. After that, my parents' house in New Jersey was flooded with reporters, and they actually needed to call a cop to protect them and to, like, guard the house. 
And I was just bombarded with media and news reporters. My partner's best friend calls him and he says, hey, um, you know, Satora's pictures are all over the internet. And so I go online and sure enough, my name is everywhere. My pictures are everywhere. My social media, like my quotes, everything is like everywhere already. Some of the headlines said wife of, like not even ex-wife, you know, and um, I was like, I was, I was so angry. Satora agrees to talk to the media. At first, as a way to clear up the misinformation she's seeing. I just felt like all I can do is really stand up for myself, speak my truth, and clear whatever confusion is was already happening by really just, you know, expressing my truth and my experience. He would get mad out of nowhere. That's when I started worrying about my safety, and then after a few months, he started abusing me. But as she begins to share her story, Satora realizes that her insights about Omar could fill in some of the missing pieces and help the nation heal. She could tell the reporters and the media about his background. Omar had a very troubled childhood, problems with his parents, problems growing up, behavioral issues. She was able to at least tell the media a little about Omar that they had no idea about before. I felt so much of the families that were affected by this, and um, that was one of the ways that I felt I could bring some closure, some insight. Satora also reaches out when Omar's actions paint a target on his current wife, Noor, as well. In 2017, Omar's wife, Noor, was arrested. She was charged with providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization and obstruction of justice. She pleads not guilty. Her defense attorney is saying she's a victim. I just immediately imagined what she must have went through being with him. I was pretty sure that she was also getting abused and she was also threatened and um, she was in a worse situation than me because she had a child with him. A civil rights activist contacted me to um, give my testimony as somebody that has lived with Omar and experienced that with him, what she might have went through. In 2018, Noor is acquitted of all charges. Omar's horrific actions forever changed the lives of those affected by the tragedy. The Pulse nightclub itself will never again host parties or be a place for the public to gather, except as a memorial. That space will never be built on. And so people will be able to come there and remember the horror that happened and, and learn from it. It's something that should not be forgotten. And the inability to truly understand Omar's motivations makes it difficult to move on. Omar was clearly conflicted. So then you toss in a little religious fanaticism and it's a deadly recipe. I do think he was a psychopath. I do think ever since early childhood he showed his propensity for violence and his propensity for cruelty. He loved to inflict fear. He loved to have that power over people. And he was just a really imbalanced person that had a lot of hate and anger and needed to release that in some way. Satora finds that by sharing her story, she is able to help other women who have gone through what she's experienced. This whole process for me was very difficult 
but I feel like it was maybe the universe's way to get me to actually talk about it, express it, and heal from it. It feels great to be a woman that has experienced a lot and to be there for other women. And we're all sisters, you know, we all have suffered a lot in this world and uh, it's important for us to be there for each other. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Satora learns that the best way to heal is to continue the conversation. I feel like everybody just has to be more conscious of their relationships within, you know, starting with themselves, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to your emotions, how you understand and how you express your emotions, how you relate to your family. Issues that are there have to be expressed, have to be resolved, have to be talked about. Things have to be healed. We can't keep them bottled inside because this is what's going to happen. I Lived With a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of I Lived With a Killer, including tell-all interviews with family members and crime scene photos. You'll get only on Reels Channel. Did you know you can stream the I Lived With a Killer TV series as well as Reel's companion programs Murder Made Me Famous and Autopsy on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. Just download the Reel's app and subscribe. If you've got Prime Video, Reel's is on Amazon channels too. I Lived With a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reel's channel. Find Reel's on your TV by going to reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z dot com.